Thank you. We give God praise for his word. Yeah. Before we get into anything, Piper, would you stand up for me really quick, please? Um, you have a friend named Michelle Coxwell who's here, and uh, she wants to help lead us in happy birthday um, together. So, so, Michelle, if you'll stand up for us and help us sing happy birthday, I'll, I'll help you. And we're going to sing happy birthday to Piper. Ready? Happy birthday to you. Praise God. Yeah. We tried to get a sombrero and some like whipped cream to put on your nose, but it didn't work out. And just so you all know, Michelle did ask me and said she wanted to kind of prank Piper by doing that. And so that was kind of partially, oh, it was Lee that did that. Oh, it was Lee. Um, mm, mm. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. The two shall become one, she said. That's great. That's great. That was Lee. All right, let's pray. <laughs> God, will you give us ears to hear today your word? May you give us a mind that will set aside maybe any false narratives or preconceived ideas of who you are that stand in the way of your truth today. And God, may we uh, hear your word and not mine. And most of all, would you give us a heart that's willing to move in obedience? Uh, and, and here's the reason why, God, we ask that Collectivist Church is not a church that's merely hearers but doers so they can carry hope into dark places. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hang tight. I have five announcements, and they're going to be quick. Number one announcement, students, 5th through 12th grade tonight, 6 p.m., charge worship night. It's going to be amazing right here. If you know somebody, call somebody, bring somebody. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, number two, next week is the first Sunday of the month, which we have our Essentials Luncheon right after this service. So next month, if you want to learn a little bit more about who we are as a church, it's a free lunch. We can come learn who we are where we've been, where we're going, see what part you want to play within that, um, and so come be a part of that. Number three, we're past halfway. Um, next Sunday, we will be releasing our Easter service times. We're working with those, figuring out what it is, but I do want to put on your radar that Easter is the last Sunday of spring break. So if you're making spring break plans and you want to be with your home church during that season, um, great. If you're going to be in Gulf Shores, let me know. We have a partner church down there. We can get you in church on Easter there as well. But it's the last Sunday of spring break, um, and uh, so we want you to be here for that. And the last one is March 16th, which is the Saturday before my birthday. Um, we will have a serve team appreciation dinner. So if you're currently on a serve team, or maybe you've been on one and you've been unengaged and you want to hop back in, or maybe you're thinking about getting on a serve team, this would be a great time to do that. So if you didn't get an email about how to register for that, you can also just go to our website, I think it's under resources, and it'll say serve team appreciation dinner. You can click that, fill it out, and we're going to have a good night together that Saturday night. We're going to have good food. I'm going to kind of cast some vision where we're going. We'll have a fun a fun time together, so make sure um, you do that. So we're in a series called Into the Wilderness. We're in week two of that. Let me give you a little context. Ariana read the passage, but in the chapter right before that, Jesus goes to this guy named John the Baptist, who his job was to prepare the way for Jesus. He came, um, was born, and went and told people to repent, to change their mind. Metanoia is the Greek word for that word repent, that the, the kingdom of God was at hand. And he would baptize people, and when he would baptize them, he says, I baptize you with water, but there's one who's coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And he was speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Jesus shows up to where John the Baptist is baptizing, and he says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John says, I can't baptize you. That's not how this should work. And Jesus says, you have to. He says, we have to do this. And also because it comes in alignment with the prophecy spoken about Jesus. So John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And in that moment, um, this really kind of holy moment happens where Scripture says the heavens opened up, a dove descended on him, and then a, a voice spoke that says, this is my son. With him, I'm well pleased. The next verse after that says that Jesus then was sent, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by Satan. And so after all of that, I feel like we need a joke. And here's the thing about jokes here. The last two weeks, I've been using um, what the Coates family gave me, this box of dad jokes. Last week, I used them a lot. I was going to retire them this week and just put them in my office. But then I walked in this morning. And when I walked in this morning, I had this little note from our confirmation class. I mean, our uh, Discipleship Pathways class. And it says this, Pastor Ben, we saved these for you. These are the best ones. So they have chosen the best ones. And I will not read them all because we have more than we had announcements. Um, and so let me just read the three on top. Well, more this. Yeah, we'll go with this one. Um, do you want to hear a joke about paper? Never mind, it's terrible. Oh, oh man. I wouldn't buy anything with Velcro. It's a total ripoff. Um, let's see. Let's see if there's any other good ones. Uh, our wedding was so beautiful, even the cake was in tears. But um, this is my favorite one. But if you're like nine o'clock, it'll be a delayed reaction. Uh, yesterday, a clown held the door open for me. I thought it was a nice gesture. Some of y'all still don't get it, but it's okay. We'll get there. Um, so I, after all those jokes, I have a very serious question. And, I, and this question, I'm, it's, it's rhetorical, but I want you to write it down. If you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. I want you to think about it through every bit of today's message. And here's, here's the question. When did you fall out of love with Jesus? I know we just made jokes and now we're serious, right? But when did we fall out of love with Jesus? Like at one point in your faith, if you started your faith journey prior to today, like you were so in love with Jesus. You loved him, like you, 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 like, and now we find ourselves where the psalmist says, Restore to me that joy of my salvation. A, a love for the things of God, by the way, apart from the person of God, is what I would call like a spiritual parasite. It's not actually a relationship, it's just longing to get the things from God more than the person of God. And let's just be honest for a second. In any other relationship in this world, if there was someone who was with someone, purely for what they could give them, financial gain or material benefit, we have a word for that or a phrase. Now, I'm not saying you're a gold digger, okay? <laughs> Nine o'clock, I thought that was way funnier. Um, but in our spiritual life, we might have just had more kids from the 90s then, I don't know. Um, in, in, in your spiritual life, when you seek the things of God apart from the person of God, we find ourselves coming up emptier than we ever have been. So my question again is, when did we fall out of love with Jesus? Revelation 2, uh, Revelation, give you a little context, is this book, last book in your Bible. And uh, that book is a vision given to John, and John is writing down this vision of the end times. That's why when we think about Revelation, we're like, ooh, end times, right? Um, it's given of the end times, and 
we see the resurrected Christ in the end addressing the church of Ephesus. And this is not just the church of Ephesus, which is, is addressed. He's speaking to a broader church because this is in the future, right? And he states that, listen, they've persevered hardships. They've done a lot of things for the gospel and for the kingdom. That They've overcome hard times. And then he ends with this terrifying warning to the future of the church. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had it first. Um, my kids, Kai and Wendy, are both adopted from Korea. I've told their story. Well, I don't tell their whole story. That's their story. But I've told parts of their story in this situation many times. And before we, had our, we adopted them, we had heard about them. We already knew them. We already loved them. We already knew that we were a family forever. But most children that go through the adoption process, especially if they have been in foster situations or things like that, um, do something that is just within ingrained in us, in our trauma and our hurt. And that is when they go to their long-term adopted family, there's a season of what they call mommy shopping. Um, and we saw this with both of our children. Mommy shopping is when you take custody of them, but there's a season where everyone who shows up, they view them as if they could possibly be their next caregiver. So if someone else is in the room, they're evaluating, is this my next mommy? They're, they're even kind of um, leaning into that. And so there's a season of where we as parents have to show them that they can not only evaluate our relationship, but they can trust our relationship. And not only do they trust our relationship, but they need to know that we've already chosen them. And we understand that there will be a moment where they have to choose us. And in this examination process, our goal and desire is to let them know that no one else is their provider but us. And we go through pretty extreme means. Like um, early on in that adoption process, if our friends were even around our missional community and one of our kids would fall and skin their knees, our, they would not pick them up. And that was part of the rules. You're like, well, that's mean. Why wouldn't they pick up a kid who's getting their knees? Because the, the, our children had to learn that, like, initially that we would care for their needs. When they were hungry, um, they, our friends would not feed them. We would feed them. Why? Because they had to learn that we were their providers. And so what I'm saying is many of us here, and I understand this, and this is, this is no reprimanding, no, no negativity. You are examining what will provide for your life. And all I ask of you as a pastor and someone who cares for your spiritual life is that in your examination of the things around you, that you would examine God as well. And what I mean by that is that you would come before him and pray, that you would read his word, that you would get in community, that you would learn to be still with your creator, with your father, with one who is with you. And by the way, collectivists, we say this often, your questions will not break God. And so you are allowed to wrestle with God, to ask questions to God. Growing up, I was taught, and not a good teaching, and maybe you were as well, that your questions were not something that should be asked of God, especially if it went beyond the theology of that church or the answers of that institution, that we would be guilted to say you don't question God. God is big enough for your questions. does not affect him. He would love for you to have answers to the ones he can answer, and he would love to give you peace to the ones that we can't understand. So I want you to evaluate God, and I want to tell you what I believe. I believe in your evaluation of God, you will find him to be trustworthy and true. 
So in this series, we're actually, it's a Lenten series. I'm going to explain what Lent is. Lent is 47 days leading up to Easter. It goes all the way back to the early church. They did these 47 days, 40 days excluding Sundays, that they would fast and they would pray in preparation for their baptism on Easter Sunday. And just a little bit of another announcement, if you want to be baptized the Sunday after Easter, we will be baptizing. We'd love for you to check that on the back of your connection cards. Love to be a part of that day with you. But they would use 40 days of getting in position to receive the fullness of the resurrection of Jesus. They would use 40 days of repenting, changing their mind on the things of their flesh and becoming dependent on God. And we are constantly, I believe, shopping for who can care for our needs, who can provide for our wants. And we find ourselves let down time and time again because we've trusted something that's failed us. And Lent is a season for us to recalibrate those things. I wrote in my journal this week, just my definition of Lent, at least for this week, and it's this, A season of withdrawing ourselves from dependence on the world and drawing nearer to God and becoming more dependent on him. Because I think we're constantly mommy shopping or father shopping or provider shopping or God shopping for what will provide for our needs and for what will guide our life and for what will satisfy our souls. For what. But today I want to reveal to you is that you can trust God. And I do this in hopes that when we begin to trust him, You can fall in love with him again. So today, if you're taking notes, message title would be called Our Provider. At Collectivist, we ask the same four questions every time we open the word, either about the passage or about the topic. And today we'll talk about this idea of God being our provider. And the four questions we will ask is, what does God want us to know about him being provider? Why does he want us to know it? What does he want us to do? And what will be the results? Um, I'm going to move through some bigger passages pretty quick. So if you want to take note of this, our big three passages today, Matthew chapter 4, Exodus chapter 16, and John chapter 6, which all of them are cross-references and intertwined with each other, and you'll see that in a moment. So four questions. Let's start with what does God want us to know? And the first one's simple. I've already given it to you, and we have two of them. The first one is that God is our provider. Like, he is our provider. Matthew 4. We just read it. Jesus says, it is written, no man should live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus isn't just giving us like a mind-blowing statement like Jesus often does, right? Jesus is actually referencing another passage. And that's really an interesting thing to take note of is when Jesus was at a low point, which was in this wilderness, in this desert, and was tempted by Satan, he didn't even rely on his good thoughts, on his strength. Like, he went to Scripture. He's actually quoting Moses from Deuteronomy, where Moses is reminding the Israelites how God fed them manna, But how it wasn't just about the manna, but it was about God. Actually, here's the passage he quoted. Moses says, he humbled you, Israel, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He was saying, listen, like God provided something for you. That was different than anything you could have asked for. You were hungry, and so you might have said what you wanted, but he provided this thing called manna, which you and your ancestors didn't even know about. Like so many times we tried to, instead of going to God with our needs, we go to him with our exact way we want him to do things, right? Like, God, I'm hungry. 
like, can you give me a low-carb diet? And he said, no, I'm giving you a high-carb diet. See, I have a biblical diet, if you didn't know that. Manna is just carbs, and I've been following that for my whole life, right? And it's made me a very well-rounded person, just so you know. I don't know. I know. That's, that was good. That was good. I'm not that well-rounded, Brittany. Okay, stop. <laughs> Man does not live on bread alone, but every word comes from the mouth of God. Now, what's happening is where he's referring back to what we see in Exodus, which is the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt where they were slaves into the promised land. After verse 14, where they crossed the Red Sea, God has been providing for them. And this is what he's referring to. Moses is referring to this. Look, I'm going to skip around in it. But then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And by the way, that's what I want for my birthday, okay? Then people are, are to go out each day and gather enough for, look at this, that day. Not enough for the week, not enough for tomorrow, that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The Israelites did as they were told, so they gathered much, uh, they, they gathered much, some gathered much, sorry, some little, which is interesting. Some people got a lot, some people got a little. And when they measured it by the omer, which is the measurement, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, remember, no one is to keep any of it until tomorrow. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until tomorrow. Why? Because God provided today, but I don't trust to provide tomorrow. Right? Like we love to, like, like God provided in this moment, and so I'm going to cling to that because I'm not sure if he'll provide tomorrow. That is not the case of an unfaithful God. That is the case of an untrusting people. And it says, they, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses, Moses was angry with them. Why? Because they were being wasteful of what today's bread was. The Israelites ate manna, not the maggot-filled kind, for 40 days, all the way until they came to the land that they were settled. They ate this manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Here's what I want you to hear. God longs to be your daily bread. Um, when I was younger, uh, I um, never knew that there was places that don't give free refills. I'm pretty sure everybody gives free refills now because it's against the law. I think we wrote that in, right? But at, at, I thought that everybody gave free refills. But one time I was down at the beach, pretty sure it's spring break. Oh, I'm not going to tell you what year. Um, but it was before video cameras, I'll tell you that. Um, or cell phones. Um, Went down there and I got something to eat and I had very little money. I was paying for it myself and I got a drink. But again, my diet consists of carbs and, and carbonated drinks, right? And so I got like four refills because that's what you do. And then I got my ticket at the end and it had like four different full prices of drinks. And I remember being like almost angry because I had just assumed that the next refill was not going to cost me anything more. Can I tell you one thing too? One reason that we often hold on to the bread or the goodness of God from one day to the next instead of being reliant on the next, as I think deep down inside, we've been taught that everything has strings attached and that we can take what we have from God now, but tomorrow it might come with something new that's required. And I want you to hear this. God is your provider, and that mindset comes from a people who can't or don't trust that God is and will do what he says. And that's the second thing I want you to know is that God can be trusted. 
two areas specifically that God can be trusted. And the first is that you can trust his word. You see, I think that we, I wrote this in my journal. We have to cling to every word from God or we will fall for every lie of our adversary. Right? My, one of my favorite things, I've taught this for years. But I want to back up a little bit to the story. Jesus is in the desert. I told you what happened before, but I want to read it to you. As soon as Jesus was baptized, this is before he was in the wilderness, the little chapter before, Matthew chapter 3. He went up out of the water, and at that moment the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Do you know what the next part is? Then he goes to the wilderness, Satan shows up, the first words out of the adversary's mouth is, you know it, if you're the son of God. The last thing God spoke was to Jesus was that this is my son. The first thing Satan did was question what God had spoken. Said it for years, but don't let Satan question in the desert that which God spoke in the river. I want you to believe what God is speaking, that he is trustworthy and true. And the way that Jesus can move forward in the desert is because he believes and trusts. And we need to come to that place as well. I've told some of you this. If you were here before the new year, um, I had a new year resolution. I don't do resolutions much. But my new year resolution was this, that I want to believe God the first time this year. I've gotten really good at believing God. But it takes a little bit of convincing me to believe God. So this year I want to believe him the first time and quit wasting days waiting for some kind of affirmation or some kind of reminder. But instead take him at his word because he's trustworthy and true. Why would Satan be worried about you hearing from God clearly? Well, look at what, look at what John, in John 8 says. To the Jews who believed in Jesus, Jesus says, I want you to hold to my teaching." Because if you hold to what I say, if you hold to my words, you'll truly be my disciples. And then from holding to my words and becoming my disciples, you will know the truth. And now that you know the truth and you're holding on to my words because they're true and they're trustworthy, then that truth will set you free. And we know in John 10.10, 10, just two chapters later, we actually see the desire of the enemy. And it's to still kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come to give life, give it to the full, so that you can experience freedom in this life. Satan's been questioning and misconstructing and misconstruing the words of God since the beginning. You remember the creation story. The story goes that God created and he put us in paradise. He said you can eat anything, but there's one tree. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the snake's representation of Satan in this moment speaks and says, if you are, uh, did God really say? Like he just wants to question what God spoke in your life because when you cling to what God speaks in your life, it leads you to life to the full. It leads you to truth. It leads you to freedom. But he longs to see you captive. And I believe he's still doing this today. And I have a warning for us and for the church. I believe that the sad part is that he's doing it today and he's often using mouthpieces, not just behind pulpits, but within congregations as well. And here's what I mean by that. I have the question, are we telling people and showing them the truth of God? Or are we spreading false information about God and making it just an innocent misunderstanding? See, I think that Satan is still manipulating the word of God and he's feeding us partial truths. And we learned this in a few sermon series back, that believing a partial truth is simply embracing a believable lie. 
And in order to know the truth, you have to get it from its source. And that's why I ask you not to take me at my word, but to take him at his. This is why we, we want you to become biblically literate people. And this is why, like, when you leave today, you don't have to leave and go home and, and try to come back next week. We have Bibles for you to take, the Word of God. This is why we have a fifth and sixth grade group going through learning the truths about God. This is why, if you're here for our four-year anniversary, we talked about our ten um, defining factors of collectivists. And the first one is we'll teach the Bible and teach it fully. And we won't take it out of context. And we won't use it for personal agendas, right? Like, I'm not claiming that I or we have a perfect theology. We actually have a lot of theological humility, realizing there's people who love Jesus, pray harder. They might think differently within their theology than us. But I can promise you something, and I promise this, take it to my grave with this promise. Like, call leadership and fire me if this isn't true in the future, today, or whenever. I have no agenda besides the kingdom of God. I don't. Like, we don't have a political agenda we don't have personal agenda. We don't have religious agendas. Like there will, like anything that is taught from collectivists will be only for the kingdom of God. And if it is any other way, I tell you, you should leave. And I say that about any place that you go that uses the word of God and a partial truth in order to manipulate you into ways that are not ways of God. That is a work of the enemy and it is not a work of God. Why? Because how you view God will determine how you relate to him. And how you relate to God will dictate how you display him. And I want you to trust his word, not mine. I want you to take him at his word. I, and, and, and what do I, what, so what do I do to distinguish between the voice of God and the lies of the enemy? I'm going to give you probably the most practical part. This is one of those questions that gets asked all the time. How do I know the difference in Satan speaking in my life and God speaking in my life? I'm going to give you, I think it's five quick things. You're going to take a picture of it because I don't, we're not going to be there long enough to write it down. A um, couple things. God's voice calls you by your potential Satan reminds you of your past. So when God is speaking to you, he will speak either your name or what he has created and put within you. And what Satan speaks to you, he will call you by your past, by your actions, and by your mistakes. Number two, God's voice prompts peace and clarity. Satan creates confusion and anxiety. Number three, God's voice encourages dependence on... Here you go, Piper. It's your birthday. I'll give you one more try. She looked very downtrodden for a second. God's voice encourages dependence on him. Satan appeals to your self-sufficiency, which can be a very confusing one. Here's why I say that. Not every voice that says you can do it is God's. I'll be honest with you. Many times God's voice isn't that you can do it. It's we can do it. God never leaves you nor forsakes you. And he on, understands that in our flesh we will fail. He understands that there are things that are too much for us. But he promises that he's for us and he's for us what can be against you. So not every voice that says you can do it is God's. Some of those are a very defeating voice. Trying to get you to step into territories without God. And that self-sufficiency will fail you many times over in our flesh. God's voice leads to conviction and repentance. Satan's voice leads to shame and condemnation. Won't camp out here. What's the difference in conviction and condemnation? Both I refer to as a rope. Conviction is a rope that pulls you towards hope. Conviction shows you what could be and what stands in the way that we need to handle in order to see out that potential. Condemnation is a rope as well, but it ties you down to your failures. 
Condemnation holds you in place. It shows you what's in the way and tells you you can't make it through it. And then last, God's voice cultivates love and service. It always prompts us to love and serve others. Satan's voice always promotes selfishness, self-preservation, and harm towards others if it gets in the way of our preservation. So, you can trust his word. I think that you can trust God, and I want to give you the second reason you can trust God, because you can trust his ways as well. Next, we're going to be in, in John chapter 6, a very connected passage to what we've read. I'm going to set it up a little bit. Jesus, by the way, um, Jesus cares about your, your, your flesh as well. He cares not just about your spiritual life, but about your physical life. So much so that when people gathered to hear him teach, he fed them, 5,000 of them, 5,000 men. That's not even counting the women and the children. He fed them. And it was a miracle the way he fed them. And he fed them all. And after he fed them, he taught them. And then after he taught them, he sent the disciples out in a boat. And as he sent them out into the boat, um, Jesus says this, actually, the crowd, knowing that what they, the crowd, intended to come and make him king by force. I think this is interesting. Why is that a negative thing? That they would try to make him king. Because Jesus was already coming to be king, but not by force. It went against his means and his manners. And so he, they were trying to make him king by force. So what did he do? He withdraw to the mountain by himself. So here's the scene. The disciples are in a boat. Jesus is up on the mountain. The crowd that he fed the thousands to and preached to are looking for Jesus now. Jesus comes down that mountain goes out, the disciples are struggling in the boat, he walks on the water, that's that story of Jesus walking on the water, and then they eventually get to the other side, and when they get to the other side, the, 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 the crowd has now found Jesus, and this is what it says. When they found him, the crowd, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? Like they didn't see him walk on the water, but they knew something had to happen. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. This is interesting. Listen to this. Not because you saw the signs I performed, not because of the spiritual things I did, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Here's, here's what happened. He's saying, Jesus is saying, you received a good meal and now you've come back for leftovers. That's what he's saying. Um, have you ever uh, eaten such a big meal that you went to bed that night and said, I'm never going to eat again? Yeah. So I'm going to be honest, so Cassidy, my wife, she, uh, this last year, did a thing called 40 Before 40. She tried a 40 award-winning dishes, she's a foodie, before she turned 40, all in Alabama. So we traveled around every weekend, we're trying to find somewhere to eat, and they weren't even big meals. Some of them was just like, you have to have the dessert here, it's like, won this award, or this kind of acclaimed dish. We did them all, and so for her birthday, when she turned 40 this year, I gave her two big meal experiences, and one of them was to go to a very well acclaimed restaurant in Atlanta. And so this past weekend, we literally drove to Atlanta just to eat, stayed in an Airbnb and drove back, right? And it was one of the best meal experiences of my life. And it was so fancy. Y'all. I want you to understand, I'm not fancy when it comes to food. Um, my buddy Jameson, who's our musical director, he says that I have a child's palate with a little bit of money. That's what he says. <laughs> He says, like, Ben eats fancy children's food. Like, I can tell you the best pizza places in town. I can tell you where to get the best burger. Um, and I like some food. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm more adventurous than what, but not as adventurous. I watched my wife once when we were in Korea. Um, I watched her get in lines for food that she didn't even know what the food was. She just saw a long line and thought, it's got to be good. I watched her 
pick up at the market in Korea, like a squid that was still moving on top of a thing and eat it, right? Like, like yes, I know, she's gross. I married her. I know. I know. I wish that gross was cheap at times, but it's not, right? But my wife will not buy anything, but she will spend money on experiences, especially food. So we go to Atlanta, go to this nice restaurant, and it is no big dishes, but a bunch of little dishes. And it was closer to art than it was edible, in my opinion. Uh, no, it was actually delicious. But they brought all these little plates, and even though it wasn't much food at a time, by the end, we were both, like, stuffed, right? We go back to our Airbnb, and we were just like, oh, my gosh, I'm never eating again. And we've all said that. But then what happens the next morning when you wake up? You turn to the person next to you and you say, what? What's for breakfast, right? And that's what happened. She woke up the next morning. We both woke up. We looked at each other. And our Airbnb was, uh, the bottom floor was a coffee shop. It was in an uh, apartment there. And we were like, we saw cinnamon rolls the day before. We were like, cinnamon rolls for breakfast? I went down and got them. And when I brought them back up, you know what we said after we ate them? We're like, oh, my gosh, never going to eat again. So then we went and played this fancy little putt-putt place in downtown Atlanta. And afterwards, we walk out, and there's all these restaurants. And we're like, what's for lunch, right? There's something in us that, that just even when we have had our fill, we will always be hungry again, right? That's why Jesus is saying, like, I don't live on bread alone, because even when I eat, I'm going to be hungry again. It's even proof. Even when he provided for thousands of people food, but then he also gave them a word as the Messiah. They came back, not because of what he had said. They came back because that food had run up. And by the way, I am a person who believes that God does the miraculous, that he heals bodies, that we see things resurrected. We see relationships change. We see physical things done. But no matter how many times God heals your body, you will one day die. And so he cares about you spiritually more than he cares about anything else. And I say this because he fed the thousands and they showed back up for more. Right? Look at this. And it says, he says to them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they, the crowd, asked... What must we do to, to what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answers, such a great answer. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, look at this, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? They were willing to follow this man around an ocean of a lake to get more food, but they want him to prove that he's worth following. He just fed them 5,000 5, plus people with nothing. He just walked on water. And they knew he got there some way miraculous. They were like, how did you get here? And they want him to prove something to them because they don't trust him. They trust him enough to take his provisions, but they don't trust him enough to follow him. We trust God enough to receive anything he will give to us, but we don't trust him enough to fall in love with him. And he says, what will you do? And then they wanted to remind Jesus of what God has done in the past. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. That's that, that's that Exodus passage, right? As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. Number one, he's like, number one, you're mistaken. I think you're trying to give Moses more credit than he needs. He goes, but it is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. <laughs> and Jesus says, I am the bread. 
So whatever, whoever comes to me, look at this, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Wrote in my journal this week, the desire of a Christian is not to master anything, but rather to be mastered by the Spirit. It's, it's, it's the realization that our life has two ways of navigating it. We can either, out of our self-discipline and flesh, try to take rule over our flesh, or we can live lives that are ruled by the kingdom of God. It's the realization that, that greater is he that's within us than he that is in this world. And I think that we have to stop trying to live out of our flesh and become reliant on the Spirit. And I believe that a life led by the Spirit and one that is fully trusting of God does not make you a failure failure in your flesh, right? It makes you faithful in your spirit. It helps you take heart. Why? Because we are not defeated. We're victorious. Why? Because he says in this world you will have problems. But take heart because I have overcome the world and he's called you to take on his ways. John Wesley, revivalist, theologian, says, The giving up of ourselves to God, to be ruled and guided by him, to be defended, blessed, and saved by him, has also been clearly and strongly enforced. John 6, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And then they ask, what must we do? What must we do to do the works God requires? He says, to believe in the one he has sent. Here's the truth. You and I will not follow someone we do not trust. We might come to him for provisions, but we will not follow him. We always default back to our abilities when life gets hard, right? We always default back to what we can do when we face the adversities of this world. This is why when you're lost and someone else is driving, you could care less about how they were driving or the directions they were following until you realize they were lost. And then all of a sudden you want to take over quickly. Because we always default back to our, uh, our abilities when we're in places of adversity. But the truth is this. You can trust his ways. So what does God want me to know? We just said it. God is your, our provider and God can be trusted. Why does he want you to know this? I'm going to give you three quick things. Number one, because the things of this world will fail you. That, there's no question about that. He says, the beginning says, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life. And then they, again, he says at the end, he says, the work of God is to believe in the one who he has sent. Not to put your faith in things that will fail you, but to put your faith in him. And I believe that part of this is that we've taken the attributes of this world and put them on a heavenly father. When people have failed us, we put those on God. But listen to me, the world will fail you, but Jesus will not. Which is number two, why God wants you to know this, because Jesus will always remain faithful. Always. Like that, there's no question of it. Jesus says this, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then look what it says, I love this. Sir, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I will be faithful. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me never will go hungry because I'm faithful. I am the bread. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Remember that idea of mommy shopping, right? When my children, when they were, again, adopted and they started looking at everybody as their possible caregiver, they had to learn one thing first and that we were permanent and for other, forever. That others have failed them. My son had five foster families before he was 15 months old. Others had left him, but we would not fail him. 
And they had to learn that before they could ever choose to trust us. And so today, in order for you to fall back in love with Jesus, in order for you to trust him and not just come for his provisions, but to come for his presence, I need you to understand that Jesus will never fail. People in churches have hurt you, but God did not fail you. Institutions have failed you, but Jesus will not fail you. The world has failed you, but Jesus will be faithful. Again, we often take earthly attributes, contribute them to our Heavenly Father. This is why some of you struggle to call him Father. Because you've had a father that's failed you. And don't take your earthly failures and put them on a heavenly God. God is faithful always. God wants you to realize that he is faithful in your past. He is faithful in your future. But he is also faithful today. John, look at 16 again. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Because if you're keeping it until morning, then you're thinking God was faithful, but not that he will be. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. My mom, I've told the story before, but when I moved to Birmingham, I was 19 years old. I moved up here for, not, I wouldn't even call it a part-time job, in ministry. I had to take a second job. And she sent me with a whole box of things. And I thought she was just like getting rid of my baby pictures or something. I didn't know what it was. So it went in the closet of the house I was living in with a couple of different guys. And a few months later, I decided to move out. And I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you one of the reasons I decided to move out was because I found mice just everywhere in the house. And I was like mad at the person who owned the house. I'm like, your house is disgusting. Like there's mice everywhere. And it really wasn't a disgusting house, but I was like, I can't live in this. And I came up with some other reasons to leave as well. So when I went to pack up, I went to grab that box out of the closet that my mom had given me months before. And realized there was a hole in the back of that that mice had chewed into. And I opened up that box and realized that it was not baby pictures. It was food. My mom had given me food. And that one, one of the things in there was a loaf of bread, which was now not bread. I don't know if you've seen bread like three months later. It's not bread anymore. Um, it is just a black goop. And it was disgusting. And the mice had come in. Why? Because I had held on to something that was meant for right when I moved in for future I would open, I'm sure at some point if I'd gotten desperate enough, I would have seen what's in that box. But I wasn't in that moment desiring to open what was given to me, even though it was given to me for that season. Many of us are holding on to past things of God, thinking that they may do you well in the future. Like you're waiting until you get to your lowest to use the things God has given you. And he says, I have enough for those moments. This is for today. Jesus even says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, this is how you should pray. Give us this day our daily bread. I wish he would have said, give us my week's provision. Give me a year's worth of supply. Give me a raise that lets me know that I can make it another century, right? Like, like whatever it is. But the problem is we often fixate on the past and dream of the future that we miss today. We remind ourselves what God has done, which is good. We dream of what he may do, but we're not present with him in this moment. And there has been a dependence. There has to be a dependence and reliance on God. That's why we refer to your walk with Jesus as a daily walk. Why? Because we keep trying to make yesterday's miracles today's solutions, and they're not. Like some of us are waiting for Easter because last Easter God did something great in your life. He wants to do something great today. Everyone had to gather just as much as they needed. And here's the news for you. I believe that he has something new for you. And likewise, if today's blessings are for today, then yesterday's problems aren't for today. 
Yesterday's problems are in your past. And that, by the way, it's a self-defining word. The past means the past. It is behind you. So leave your past and embrace this present moment. And Lamentation says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In the last service, I pre-service, I was talking to someone who was fairly new. And uh, they were asking about my life and ministry and when I started, and I referred back to in 2004 when I went to the first church I ever uh, helped do ministry, and I was a youth pastor. Small country church in the outskirts of Greenville, Alabama. It had like 12 little old gray hair white women. No offense to anyone here. That's just who they were. They would drag their grandkids through two or three of them every week, and about once a month, their husbands might show up if we had a men's like, prayer breakfast that morning or something. And I'll never forget the Sunday because it was this little old Baptist church. And so, and man, I didn't get hired in. I got voted in by all 12 people that were there that day. And Cassidy was with me. We were dating at the time. And I go and I give this little bit of a teaching and we do service. And then they say, during this song, Ben and Cassidy and anybody who's with me is going to leave and we're going to take a vote. And as we're leaving, I'll never forget the song that was saying. Song I'd heard many times. But as I was taking this calling into ministry, feeling very unequipped, I could hear them as we're leaving it singing Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. What a promise that is. Like his faithfulness isn't limited. His provisions aren't running out. That he is faithful through and through. The Israelites ate the manna, ate the provision for all of their years, for 40 years until they came into a land that was settled, until they came to a place where God had a different provision in mind. God's faithfulness is what pulled them through 40 years. And I want you to hear me today. God's faithfulness is what will pull you through whatever wilderness you're in today as well. So why does he want me to know this third thing? Because, he set, because we settle for the old when he's offering us something new. Again, we often fixate on the past, dream of the future, and miss today. But he's here with you. And if like God is here with you in this moment, like if the God who created all things, who came, lived, died, sent his son so that we could be resurrected and give you life. If he's here with us, are we being present with him? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna, yet they died. So I can give you more manna. Or, but the one who feeds on the bread that is me will live forever. So what does God want me to do? The last thing is to choose him. God has already chosen you. He's already loved you. He's already, before the creation of time, known you. But just like my children, that daddy shopping, that mommy shopping, I already chose my kids. And they had to go through a moment of choosing me. 
Whoever eats my flesh, whoever chooses me, remains in me, choose me, and I in them. He is with you. He has not departed from you. He holds you. So remain in him. Eternity, I believe, does not just begin when you die, but today when you walk with him. Today you can begin eternity, and death can be but a blink, and you can pick up where you left off. So what will be the results? The same God yesterday, today, and forever. Worship team, you can come on back up. Um, the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Because somebody just say forever for me. Somebody just say forever. Forever. I tell my son, Kai and Wendy, part of the way that I've gotten them to trust us and to choose us is we have a couple things we say. Number one, I say, what can you do to make me stop loving you? And they say nothing. And then they test that to see if it's true or not, right? <laughs> what can you do? What can you do to make me stop loving you? They'll say nothing. And then I'll ask them, I was like, who always comes back? Like when me and Cassie went off to Atlanta, Grandma watched them for the night. And when we left, we said, who always comes back? Mom and Papa. And then we asked them this question, who is forever? And they'll tell you, we are forever. Family is forever. We have to reassure, like, like they're 10 and 7. They both came home at 15 to 18 months. And we have to remind them constantly that we are trustworthy so they can choose us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As of last night at 8 o'clock, this is where my message ended. But I wrote this entry in my journal right before I went to Atlanta, and I came back to this entry. When we look back at the stories in Scripture and then examine our lives, why don't we see the same stories, results, and outcomes? Has God changed? So last night as I opened the message, today, I had to answer this question. And of course he hasn't. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in order to sustain us, he has to be present with us. And in order for him to be present with us, he's already chosen you, but it means that we have to be present with him. This isn't a faithful God issue. This is a faithfulness as sons and daughters issue because he will always provide whenever we can come in his presence. We don't just seek his hand. We seek his heart. And I believe the answer to the prayer that you have been praying may be behind the process you've been avoiding. Meaning, his ways are not our ways. So the only way we'll know his ways is by trusting him as the provider. I think, again, that we want the things of God apart from the person of God. And, and we will not turn f uh, from God when we've been given his rule over our life. But I do believe this, that we don't run from the rules of God when under the rule of God. But when we are not being ruled by God, when we are not submitted to God, when we aren't finding Him to be Lord of all in our life, rules without relationship often result in rebellion. So a lot of times we fail at our God's rules and ways within our life because we're not under His rules, because we want the things of God apart from the person of God. We want to find Him on the other side of the lake to get more food, but we want to ask questions about why He's trustworthy to be followed. Again, I'm not saying you're a gold digger, right? But when we seek the hand of God apart from the heart of God, there's a problem. And we want God to fix our situations, but we won't allow him into our circumstances. 
We want God to take care of our financial problems. We want Him to take care of our relationship problems. We want Him to take care of our job problems. But we won't allow Him into our job situations. We won't allow Him into our relationship situations. We won't let Him be Lord of our finances. But we want Him to fix those things. We're looking for God to change our circumstances. But God's longing to change us. We're so focused on our circumstances. I think that in our current position, we're missing the presence of God. So again, I ask, just like we started, when did we fall out of love with Jesus? Augustine says this, to fall in love with God is the great romance, to seek him, the great adventure, to find him, the greatest human achievement. When Kai came home, the way I got him to trust me, gave this example years ago, was we learned that the way to Kai's heart is the way to many men's heart, through his belly, right? So we have this pantry, and Cassidy made me lower the shelves down to where an 18 to 20 month old could reach. And we'd put on that shelf anything he could have, but he couldn't get it on his own. He could reach it on his own, but he had to come to us to open it. So it'd be something like bags or something with a lid. So he'd get it because he could know that we would always have food for him, but he'd bring it to us because we were his provider. And one day, Kai goes in the pantry, he's about 20 months old. I'm sitting in the den. I hear the pantry door open because I don't WD-40 it enough. And it's like, and it opens up. And then I hear his little 20-month-old feet stomping in. And I hear a sound I've never heard before. And it sounds like a, it's like a chook, chook kind of sound. It, and he comes running back. And that sound gets louder with the pace of his feet. So his feet are running. And it's just chook, chook, chook. And he comes into the den. And he's a man of very few words at this point. And he looks at me with his arms wrapped around those big orange cheese balls containers. You know what I'm talking about? Like I, don't, I never bought them. I don't even know how they got in the pantry, but they're just there. I feel like we all have them somewhere. And he looks at me and just goes, cheese balls. <laughs> and so the, the immature utterances of a toddler was cheese balls. But I'm his father, so I heard more than that. I heard cheese balls. I get you. You want cheese balls. But you're hungry, buddy. You're hungry. So what I do? I went. I grabbed Kai. I heard his request, and I got him, and I put him in his high chair. And I took the cheese balls from him, and he watched them like they were gold leaving his hands. I set it on the counter, and I got a pair of scissors to cut the seal on them. And I take him, and I put him in his high chair. I tell Cassie, I think Kai's hungry, so she started to make dinner early. She's over there like doing chicken in the skillet and it's going to be delicious. And I take Kai and I put him in his high chair and he pitches the biggest fit I've ever seen anyone pitch. Why? Because he didn't ask for his high chair. What did he asked for? Cheese balls. Cheese balls. But what he didn't understand was I was getting him in the place he needed to be to receive what he wanted and something even greater than that. I know you needed cheese balls, buddy. Like I'm working on it. But I know you know there's so much more than that you need. But here's the deal. When I put you here, it's not because I'm being cruel. It's not because I'm taking something for you. It's because I want to get you in position to receive what you want and so much more. And many of us, the second we get put in a position that isn't what we can understand, we find someone else who can provide. If someone else would have walked in that room today, he would have found anyone else and gone, like, are you my new dad? Are you my new mom? Cheese balls, please. Because these cruel people over here put me in this, this contraption 
that holds me down. But he doesn't know that we're just trying to give him more. And I want you to hear this for your faith. You may feel as though you were in a place where God didn't hear you. But I want you to know he heard you and he heard you with a mature father's ears. He knows what you requested and he knows the deeper desires that you can't even express. And he is working for the good of those who love him. And that positioning might be different than you want, but I promise you the outcome is far greater than you could ever expect. So can you just be trusting in this moment? Can you just understand that he didn't quit being faithful today? That if he was faithful yesterday, And tomorrow, that he is faithful today as well. Let's pray together. God, we trust you. God, and if we struggle with trusting you right now, we come before you.